Hi, this is Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, Making Your World Better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All these reasons combined led me to start this podcast. It is my hope that through these podcasts, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy these podcasts as together we hear how they are making their world better. Today in the studio, we interview Cheryl Fox, the executive director of the Summit Land Conservancy. Today we're talking about collective impact and how she's seeking to provide collective impact through her nonprofit. She talks about a lot of different things, but number one, she talks about how nonprofits, in her opinion, exist to solve the problems of a local community. And the most effective nonprofits are those that work with other people, other nonprofits, and the larger community to solve those problems. She also say that, says that she had to intentionally incorporate time into her schedule to make collective impact work. In other words, it didn't just happen naturally. She had to really proactively incorporate that into her uh, schedule and mindset to make collective impact happen. Finally, she said the most important question or decision that a nonprofit leader has to make is the decision to let go of the fear of losing donors. She feels like that's the biggest obstacle keeping back nonprofit leaders and organizations from doing more collective impact is by letting go of that fear of losing donors. So I think you're gonna really enjoy Cheryl's message today. Enjoy today's podcast. All right, well, welcome. It's so good to have Cheryl Fox in the studio. She is the executive director of the Summit Land Conservancy here in Park City. I understand it started in 2002. Tell us a little bit more about the Summit Land Conservancy. Well, thank you, Rob. I'm honored to be here. The Summit Land Conservancy actually got started as a Park City leadership class project. Really? That's right. A lot of people forget about that. But back in 1998, Park City leadership class four was looking around the community, as all the leadership classes do, and looking at what problems faced us, what issues were, faced, were we facing. And at that time, there were developments proposed in Empire Pass, which has become Empire Pass. The Kmart slash TJ Maxx and Smith's, all of that had not been developed, but it was getting started. The Walmart had gone in. There was a huge development with condos and golf courses planned for Round Valley. And people were sort of looking around at all this. These were, these were big developments, and people realized that it was going to change our town, it was going to change mm -hmm. our demographic, and right. we were freaking out, frankly. I bet, and this is pre-Olympics, and so pre yeah, still a very small mm -hmm. town at that time. Very small town. You know, people lived in town. And so we went on city tour to Helena, Montana, very huh. conservative place. And mm -hmm. Helena had, there was a big iconic mountain in their town. And they had bonded for, I think, $50 million, or that might be too much. They bonded for a lot of money and they bought this mountain. And we came back and we thought, wow, you know, maybe this is what we need to do. Or we need to figure out, we need to do something. Because we had realized, you know, some people had been involved with the development process and going to planning commission meetings and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. And what we realized was that in the state of Utah, zoning has few teeth, hmm, if any, right, and right. you would stand up and say things like, wow, you really shouldn't build something at 8,000 or 8,500 feet. Well, common sense doesn't matter. Environmental impact to the elk and moose didn't matter. And so what our class realized is we just need to buy it. 
That's fair to the, I mean, all this is private land, Mm -hmm. unlike other Western ski resorts. All this is private land. And so if somebody owns it and somebody's been been paying taxes on it, so really the fair thing to do is just to go buy it. Right. So we formed an organization and the goal was we were going to raise money here to save land here. And that's what we did back in 1998. At that time, we called ourselves COOL. Conserving our open land. Oh, I like it. Yeah. I like it. And I know it. That's the original name. <laughs> that's the original name. That's and so great. we started out, and um, I was part of that leadership class okay. four. And at the time, I had, you know, I was a ski bum in town. I had five jobs. I said, I don't have time for another job. Um, so another guy in the class said he would kind of get the organization up and running, and then he moved to Huntsville. So they all look. Lend it back to you. They all look at me and like you're the one who's not married and has no children. You have time. So uh, you have time, right? So um, I did. I started out as the sort of starting executive director. We did a fundraiser in conjunction with what was then the Park City Arts Council. Okay. And we got the the Arts Council got a grant to write a book, and the book that we wrote was called Park City Witness. We went to local writers in town and artists, and they were asked to do something, write a piece, make something that had to do with open space, their favorite piece of open space. Maybe it was a piece of open space that had been lost. We had high school kids. We had you know people like Rich Wyman and Kristen Gould Case. Tom Clyde wrote for it. So a um, wide variety of, of wide authors. Pam Houston, who is a nationally um, known writer who's you know written books on the bestseller list, but who lived for a while in Park City, wrote a piece for it. And in truth, we stole this idea, as we have gotten many of our best ideas from other organizations, <laughs> um, because at the time, around the same time, there were a lot of people advocating for the Red Rock Wilderness in, in, in Greater mm-hmm. Utah. And they had also, Terry Tempest Williams was one of them, and Stephen Trimble, and they had written a book called Testimony. So we called ours Witness. It's so similar. <laughs> right. Okay. And um, anyway, so the Park City Arts Council basically paid for the publication of this, and we raised $5,000, and that was the seed money. That was a start. That got this organization started. And I think it's a great, um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about collective impact right. and collaboration, mm-hmm. and this was one of those situations where an arts group and what, you know, is generally characterized as an environmental group came together to do something pretty amazing. Now, your website says you started in 2002. So right. is that when you formally became Summit Land Conservancy? What happened was we tried some different organizational iterations, and um, that didn't work out terribly well. Okay. So in 2002, we decided to incorporate, you know, in 1998, there were already 85 nonprofits in town, and we thought, Oof, do we really need another one? So we, we tried doing some collaborations that weren't as successful. And so in 2002, our board decided, well, okay, we need to have uh, our own nonprofit. So at that point, I, I had left the organization. Interesting, okay. Yeah, so I left in 2000. I was, um, we had our first child, and I thought, okay, I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom. So I was a stay-at-home mom, and I was doing that thing. And um, then we had a second little baby. who They're wonderful, and they're terrific. But I realized that I would be psychotic. We would all be psychotic. Yeah, your kids if, included. If I stayed as a stay-at-home mom. Yes, I needed a little something. An else. outlet somewhere. I needed a different mm-hmm. kind of outlet, yes. So um, not to say that we might not be psychotic anyway. <laughs> you still may be, but, but right. you had so, a positive outlet. Exactly. At the time, I had retired. Okay. And now I call that my reproductive sabbatical. I like that. Oh, I like that. Very so, good. <laughs> um, when the organization became its own nonprofit, they asked me to come back on the board because I had okay. the institutional memory. Sure. And also, I, um, I also teach skiing at Deer Valley and have since 1987. Excellent. And um, Multi-talented you know, here. Oh, 
I cannot raise money for anything else, right? When my kids come home from school and they've got the wrapping paper or the candy, I'm just, you know, what, what do I have to pay to make that stuff go away? <laughs> That's not your thing. I cannot, I, just, I can't raise money for anything else. But when it comes to open space, I just feel like people should just know. That right. If they You're know that you, mm-hmm. could, you could give money to this, you should. So I had asked all of my clients at Deer Valley to support what then was cool and then later became the Summit Land Conservancy. And I frankly think that was why the board really wanted me back because yeah. those people were incredibly generous. Right. Got it. So I came back as a board member and then eventually... The they convinced you to become the executive director. We had a different executive director who didn't. There were two things. Um, she didn't like working with a volunteer board. Okay. There's sort of, I think, two fatal flaws for being an executive director. Mm-hmm. Correct me, because you might. One is Fellow, she, yeah. yeah, didn't like working for a volunteer board. Okay. The other was she didn't like to fundraise. Those are both key <laughs> roles as an ED, isn't it? Yeah. They, Interesting. Yeah. They were not a good fit then for that person. No. So okay. she kind of took a sideways step and, and left after a little while. And I. Um, was doing the job, so I just went to the board and said, well, so that was 2005. 2005 when you officially became, yes. so it's been 10 years now yes, as an ED. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. But I was not full-time until this year. Oh, is that right? Really? I had full-time I think staff. everyone assumed you'd been full-time that whole time. Yeah, okay. just from the outside. And actually, if you looked at my time cards, you would It's full-time <laughs> hours, right. I did that because I wanted the flexibility to still be with my children yeah. and, and around with my kids because I was still sort of living this fiction that I was a stay-at-home mom. <laughs> so you've been balancing a lot, and you're a good multitasker. I mean, to have all that on your plate, that's impressive. I am a multitasker. Good, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, at least a multi, you're trying. Well, that's really good to know, a little bit of the history that I was not aware of with the Summit Land Conservancy, and then your role within that has changed, but now you've been there for 10 years, and if you've been in Park City, you're aware of your organization. You can't miss it, I think, and you've done a great job. So, yeah, congratulations on all the good work you're doing, your board is doing. Um, so, yeah, as you mentioned, we are going to look a little bit at collective impact. It's kind of a buzzword around nonprofits, you know, right now. And uh, a book that came out was called Forces for Good by Leslie Crutchfield and Heather McLeod Grant. And they talk about different things uh, uh, successful nonprofits do, right? So let me just highlight a couple of things. And I'd like to get your take on that because you are leading a successful nonprofit. And, and uh, whether you're a good multitasker or not, but you've been able to do a good job in your ED role. So one of the things they say is, number one, out of the more than 1.5 million nonprofits in the United States, the vast majority are local groups striving to achieve maximum results while operating on budgets well under a million dollars. And I know you said you're focused on just a local project of saving local land. So you kind of fall into that category. My guess is, are you a budget above one million? It depends if you keep, take into account our purchases of conservation easements and open space. Got it. If you okay. do, then yes, because the land is incredibly valuable. Right. But Got our it. what I, I don't like to call them operating expenses because then people are like, well, that's just overhead, and it's not. Our right, program right. and and fixed costs is what I like to call them. Fixed costs. There fixed you go. Fixed costs um, are, I think, four four hundred thousand dollars a year. Okay. So yeah, my guess then, yeah, you would fit into that category of one of those uh, yeah. one point five million nonprofits, in the vast majority. Of them. So and and what they point out is that most aim to deepen their impact within the local community again, rather than increase their reach by scaling up nationally. And the authors found this. So I thought it was really interesting, and I'd like to talk about it with you. Is um, what they found is that the most successful nonprofits spend most of their time trying to change entire systems by number one, advocating for government policies, which I'm sure you have to with your role. Number two, tapping into the power of free markets. Number three, nurturing nonprofit networks. Number four, building movements of evangelists, they call them, which means individuals, individual volunteers and supporters who advance their cause. 
And number five, they share leadership internally. And number six, they adapt quickly to changing conditions. And my guess is in your field, there's a lot of changing conditions with um, yeah, I think rules and laws and whatnot. So those are the six practices they found that great nonprofits use uh, that have markedly made more impact than their peers. So number one, um, how are you at your uh, organization as an ED and other maybe Park City nonprofits and Park nonprofits throughout Utah seeking to change and influence external systems right now in your opinion? What's your take on that? I thought that was such an interesting question because I think that nonprofits often exist to solve a problem in the community, whether right. that's feeding people or saving open space. And so in those, those are situations where the free market has failed, the government has failed, or, or hasn't stepped up. So, so, so we are here because there's a need that somebody else isn't filling. Right. And so okay. I think that when we look at you know, different nonprofits and different causes that we're trying to, to, fit, you know, to serve, I think you know, we are looking at the bigger systemic issues. You know, why do we need to save open space? Well, because our banking system, our land use system, our zoning laws are just about, they're very wasteful. They're about sprawl. And, and all of our systems, our socioeconomic systems are set up to sprawl. Mm-hmm. So making people think about things in a different fashion is really the basis of what we're trying to do. You know, you have to look at it as like, even I think about right now, the school district is thinking about you know the bonding expanding, and sure. expanding, and you know they have footprints all over town already. Why don't they go up? Why do they have mm-hmm. to build on the field? Mm-hmm. Why do they have to take the green space away? So, if That's we were in, if mm-hmm. we were in Europe, you would go up and save the green space because if you don't save the green space, and then you know then you don't have outdoors and you don't have wildlife. And where do you grow your food? I know. Actually, you can grow your food on the roofs. Also, good point. Yeah, when we, when, it, okay. when we get to that, but so mm-hmm. I think that nonprofits do exist to fill those gaps where the existing systems have failed us or, or aren't doing a good enough job. And so any organization has to be aware of you know what is what is out there in the society, what's in the community, what's in our sort of collective system, unconscious whatever that mm-hmm. gets in the way of solving these these human problems. Well said. And uh, that leads to the next question. Um, what is the most effective way, in your opinion, to create movements of evangelists? Think of those individual volunteers and supporters who advance their nonprofit's cause. I know you have some evangelists because they're out there in Park City and they're wonderful. They believe in this idea of saving land. So how do you cultivate that? Like, how do you create a movement of evangelists in your organization? I really liked this question because um, I, I was a liberal arts major in school and grad school. And the fact of the matter is now in my life, I love my Excel spreadsheets. I love crunching the numbers. I love looking at you know, who's donating, who's not, where are donors coming from. And we have been doing in Park City for, I think, six or seven years, a film festival. Right. It's the Wild and Scenic Film Festival. It's great. It shows great films. People come. We can give away tickets. We've really thought... What time of the year is it? It's usually in the springtime in April, May, March. We're not going to do it anymore. Interesting. Okay. And why not? Yeah. Well, here's why. Because we've done also, when we've started over the last three years, a program we call Hops Hunters. And we take people on free hikes on Sunday afternoons, and we go look for wild hops that grow on the hills around here. I've been hearing you about this, You might have heard right. about them. Also, then we, with, well, we, Wasatch uh, Brewing makes a beer mm-hmm. that is called scan- Clothing Optional. Are you serious? So, oh, that's funny. It's right there with polygamy porter. That's you know? right. A little bit racy, you know, uh, causing trouble in Utah. Uh, so anyway, um, so 
But what we found is people would come to the film fest, they would, they would like, they would enjoy the film fest, but then it would come around to say, live PC, give PC. Did those people donate? No. Interesting. We, we Interesting. Did, did they, you know... It, they were drawn they, to your organization right, to the next level. They would get the year-end appeal, like, hey, you know, we're going to save this open space, will you help us out? No. We had a project, we're saving this piece of land over here, that piece of land, we could use some funding for that. Did sure. they donate? No. Interesting. The people who go to the hops hikes, fewer people. We don't reach as many people. Live PC, give PC, the rate of giving was so much greater. Interesting, okay. We huh. have a, a, something going on up here, the rate of giving so much greater. Got it. So, you so know, maybe smaller, but they're more committed. So right. you get more of a, again, an evangelist out of them. So I think that what we realized is that to, to get people really behind our cause, we had to you know, get them muddy. Interesting, okay. <laughs> and I think that would apply to any nonprofit. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's the Hope Alliance, you take them somewhere and show them. And it could be even the projects that they do in Summit County. You show them how you have helped these people and changed their lives. And I think, you know, for the Christian Center, how these people are, are benefiting. And, and boy, when right. they see that, then, then people are certainly going to want to be part of that organization. Yeah, I love it. So giving people opportunities to really taste and feel, if you will, what your organization does. I it's think a great idea. Somewhere along the way in one of my nonprofit fundraisers, you know, what we provide, what we give people is is love, right? Mm-hmm. This is the opportunity for that when they give us money or they give us time, they are giving love. And so when we give them the opportunity to really get in and feel that, taste it, as you say, it's visceral. It mm-hmm. needs to be visceral. I like that. I like that. That's great. All right, so let's go to the next question. So out of these six best practices that we just mentioned, how best can small nonprofits, again, we talked about that under a million dollar budget and, and maybe they only have one staff person, maybe two at most. How can best, um, how best can small nonprofits apply these six practices in your mind? Because my guess is here in your history, you went through those different phases. Now you're a much bigger organization than you were back in 1998, let alone 2002. So how, yeah, say there's a nonprofit out there that's small and, and they want to do these six practices. How do you do that when you're small? You know, I think that being kind to yourself about any of this is really important. I think sometimes... Talk about that. What does it mean to be kind to yourself? um, Well, when I hear a lot of great ideas, I want to do them all and I want to do them right now. Got it. And that creates a huge amount of stress. And I think that by being kind to ourselves, it's really important to have a good plan and and look at things. Wow, we have all of these ideas and all of these options. And which... We just went through a big strategic planning process and we came out of this and there were all of these great ideas and options. And the consultant actually said, you need to pick the things to do that are imperative. Okay. Put those... Prioritize those. That's right. And only do those. Mm -hmm. So some of these other great ideas that we liked, you know, you you put them on the piece of paper on the wall. If you come to my... Your office is very lovely with pictures and (laughs) and degrees and things. And our office has papers all over with great ideas of things we want to do. But it was, that was really helpful because there are so many great ideas and so many, and then, and then, so you've, you've got your list of, okay, here are the things that we're going to do, and then you'll have opportunities that pop up. And so I think there's, it's important to leave some space for those opportunities that pop up because you're going to get a call from another nonprofit that mm-hmm. says, hey, let's partner. Or you're going to get a call, you know, on my way in here from the landowner that, boy, I've been wanting to talk to this guy for years. And they called today. And he called today, five wow. minutes so you before be I was ready. supposed to talk to you. Right. So <laughs> hey, I really want to talk take to it. that guy. Absolutely. So, so you were ready for those situations to pop up because you had your priorities straight. That's right. Excellent. And that's Excellent. one of those things about this whole collective impact. When I first read it, I was very concerned. 
because we as a land trust have to be around for a very long time. Our mission, our purpose is to save open space forever. That's a long-term project, isn't it? Long-term project. It really is. So, and we hold conservation easements that are legal contracts that are perpetual. And our role in that is to go out every year to the open spaces that we are protecting and make sure there's not a new set of condos or that the weeds haven't taken over or the fences haven't. Or what happens more frequently is that the neighbors decide that that open space back there is a great place for their trampoline or their swimming pool. Right. Or they just go right. cut the trees down because they block their view. Hmm. So we have to be prepared and we have to have money set aside so that we can take care of those threats to the open space forever. And that's 20 years, 50 years, 150 years. In order to be around in 150 years, you've got to have some good governance. You've got to have right. some financial stability. You've got to have some things in place. And in that sense, we're different than some of the other organizations in town. And we just did, you know, I love this. We did a collaborative deal with Nuzzles & Co., formerly oh, yeah. Friends of Animals. Right. Okay, another great group in town. Mm -hmm. Yeah, talk about this. Yeah, this gets right into collective impact. This was great. So, and you know, we, all of us, our board, our staff, we all have our pets from Nuzzles & Co. forever mm -hmm. and ever, right? I worked at Dolly's Bookstore when that organization Did got you really? started okay. in Dolly's Bookstore. Fun, yes, okay. The Weisses. Uh -huh. So, huge supporters of this organization. So, we're getting together and we're talking about we want to do this. They have 60 acres. They want to protect it. They want us to protect it. And it was, talk about clash of the cultures. Right? Between your two organizations. Between two organizations. Okay. I have lawyers on my staff. I have professional people with graduate degrees on my staff. I have, not to say that they don't, but you know, because we're setting up these legal structures that need to last for a very long you time. You need that expertise, right? So, you know, we are um, a little uptight. <laughs> <laughs> a little type A. Even though we have our pets that, you know, help us out. Um, They're therapy pets. Which is not, they probably are. <laughs> which is not to say that, that, that Nuzzles and Co. isn't, but. Our whole thing is, you know, you have money, you have to set it aside, and we have reserves, and we have this, and we have that, so that we can, we can function if the economy goes down or if something happens. You bet. Nuzzles & Co., I mean, their whole organizational structure was very different, and who do we deal with, and, and, and just figuring that out. It was a challenge for okay. our organization. I'm sure that working with us was a challenge for them, too, mm -hmm. um, although they've been very nice and haven't said anything. <laughs> <And in laughs> We're going to get them next on the podcast. Right. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, I sat down finally because we realized that, you know, we're around, we had to be around forever. So we've right. got all of this, like, you got to lay the bricks and, you know, we are, we are the, the third little pig building that house out of stone or mm -hmm. bricks, right? Those guys, when they get a call from a shelter somewhere and, and they're going to kill a bunch of dogs and cats, those people, it's like, do, do we have some money? Yes, we have money. Go and save those so pets. So it's very immediate. It's emergency it's driven immediate, almost. Uh -huh. Right. So are they going to, you know, put money into a reserve fund so that, you know, they can pay their staff? No. They're going to go save them because something's going to die if they don't. Right. And so. Different. Yeah. Really different time different frame. culture. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it was a really interesting, um, when I first read this, this thing about collective impact, because we are so buttoned up as mm -hmm. a land trust, you know, mm -hmm. you have this and you have that and you have um, and you probably wondered, can we do a collective impact? And we're, because yes. we're so unique. And we're accredited, and uh -huh. which okay. puts a whole another level of requirements on us. About and is that, are those government requirements? Are they state government, federal? It's the Land Trust Alliance. Um, there's a Land Trust Accreditation Commission that looks hmm. at land trusts all, the car, all across the country. Got it. And, okay. and there are a bunch of practices and procedures, and you have to follow them. Because if you don't, your easements aren't going to hold up. Got You're it. not going to be around to protect. So if we say we're going to protect open space forever, then you know there are some things that we really need to do. And people get huge write-offs sometimes when they work with us because they're giving away the value of their development rights 
even if they're only giving away some of the value of the mm-hmm. development rights. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just did a deal. It was a $430,000 deduction. Oh, wow. These people donated wow. $430,000 of mm-hmm. value, right? So you think the IRS is going to sit up and take notice of that? Absolutely, yes. right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> you they bet. are. So you better have your ducks in a row. You got to really, dot yeah. your I's mm-hmm. and cross your T's because you don't want the you want them to sit up and say, "Wow, that was very generous." Mm-hmm. On to the next file. <laughs> right, right. So, Interesting. So we have to we function in a very buttoned up world, mm-hmm. and so this idea that it's all about collective impact and go out and save the animals. When I first saw this, when it was first presented to me, I thought, "Hmm, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know okay. if we're the type of organization that can throw." reserve accounts and best practices to the wind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm coming around. Okay, all right. What, all what's right. making, what, what's the value in your mind of collective impact then? What, why would you even want to come around? Like it sounds like you're, you're doing well in your direction with your organization. What's the draw for you to have collective impact? I think that um, one of the other parts of, of being an organization that's around for a long time is, is you want to be like Citibank, right? Too big to fail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, that's a good analogy. Or, or you want to have brought so much value to the community mm-hmm. that that they want you to succeed, right? right. And, and they're willing to say, wow, you know, this, this organization is really important. Or wow, you know, I've been running and doing and going in Round Valley forever and this is what they do. They make sure that we can go in Round Valley forever. So if we were to get in a bind or, you know, something goes crazy, that they come out and they say, wow, you know, we love those things that this group has done. And, and then it's just about building strength over time. And, and again, but really thinking about the value that we provide for the community because it's not just... I mean, the reason that these lands and, and the work that we do ha- has value is that you know people enjoy them, and and some of it when it's Round Valley where you can go there and enjoy it, but a lot of times you know especially in Eastern Summit County when we're working with private lands and farmers and ranchers, it is not a great idea to have a lot of public access on a working farm, right? Right. right. Dogs and the cattle or the llamas. They always get together. Yeah, they're work not real so well. Get together. Mm-hmm. So. You know, trying to figure out how to create value for people, how people can really see that those farms benefit us and in, and how they benefit us. And well said. Getting them out there and, and having those visceral experiences is important. Excellent. Well, and then now moving a little bit to those who are not serving, say, in a full-time nonprofit role, what would you say to them as the best way they can help provide collective impact to help solve today's biggest issues? Because the idea is, in this book, in fact, they mention that uh, the private sector, the government sector, and the nonprofit sector really should be working together. And so what would your message be to those who are not in a nonprofit role? Maybe they work at a bank. Maybe they work as a teacher. Uh, maybe they work for the government. Um, what would you say to them? Advocate. Okay. Advocate for whatever it is that resonates with them. So if they're a banker and you know maybe they drive by something that they see as open space that ought to be open, maybe you know they drive by somebody a beggar on the street and they feel like why do we have beggars on the street in this day and age? Um, whatever it is that moves them, or maybe you know they oh those ads that we see on television, you know. But I think that what happens is we do have this very separate idea that there's government and government does this and. Business does this, and nonprofits are this airy fairy, you know. You don't whatever they do over there. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some people have that preconceived idea. Mm-hmm. That people do, and I think that saying, you know, boy, if if we could partner these two together, how powerful could they be? And we Agreed. do a lot of partner um, 
activities with the local government in terms of acquiring open space. Mm -hmm. Because we can bring in private funding sources so the government doesn't have to spend all the money. Right. And I will tell you that we are probably by far, even though we're, well, anyway, using a nonprofit organization to mm -hmm. provide a service in the community probably it saves taxpayer dollars, right? right. Because I'm we're sure able to raise mm -hmm. money from donors who care mm -hmm. about this cause, mm -hmm. and and also we're just able to provide services generally for cheaper, which isn't always a great thing because right. that means we're not paying our people the same wages as people are being paid who work for the government, mm -hmm. and that's a whole different topic you can get into <laughs> with a different executive director. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but advocacy sounds like is that's the key is to advocate for mm -hmm. these nonprofits that you believe in and that you get behind mm -hmm. uh, so they can support your organization, for example, they can get involved, they can volunteer, but that in your mind is the biggest way they can serve. I think it's a huge way, and, 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 to, and to make sure they articulate whatever it is they care about. So. I don't know if you've heard, but Envision Utah recently did a survey of over 50,000 people in the state. That's a big That's group That's a lot of people. of people, right. And they said, you know, they were talking about growth and things and what's important. And they were stunned, the people who put this survey out were stunned that people said, we want to save farms and ranches in Utah. Interesting. I didn't know. I didn't hear that report. Very interesting. And and other, I mean, we want to save that ranch that's at the end of the the the, or, the orchard that's at the end of the street. We love that. People love living in those kinds of environments, and so that's one of those situations where somebody can say, well, you know, now Envision Utah has this mandate kind of to go forward and say, wow, we need to save farms and ranches. What do we do? How do we do that? Mm -hmm. Well, you got to pass a bond, right? Because you got to right. have some money to save some farms right. and ranches. So. Just those kinds of things when people voice what they care about. And you know that leads to action. That leads to action. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay, good. And then last question. So nonprofit leaders, what is your recommendation to them uh, from your perspective as being an ED for a long time, being in a nonprofit organization for quite a while now? Um, how can they why should they buy into this collective impact? Why should they really make an effort like you have to make collective impact something at least you're open to, if not actively involved with? In my experience, the organizations that are more successful are the ones that play well with others. Okay. Mm -hmm. Especially so networking in some place like Park City. We're a small group. And I know, you know, having watched this for a long time, there are always, you know, we have people always like, well, there's a limited number of donors. Not true. There are, you know, people, people who get too territorial seem to, their organizations get in trouble. Interesting. And so my advice is you gotta find out how you can play well with others, how can you collaborate, sometimes with organizations that are very similar to yours, and those collaborations are more difficult. Mm -hmm. They just are because- there's more overlap, right? There's more overlap, mm -hmm. and, and there's fear that, wow, you know, if they found out that we do this and that similar organization, to, you know. My feeling has always been, people are gonna support what they wanna support. So our job is to go out and do the best work we can do and do it with a smile on our face and, and, and you know, really try to do some important things. Um, so again, you see nonprofits that thrive are really those that are willing to work with others and want to network and collaborate. And it's so much fun. Too. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we partner a lot. Of course, Mountain Trails and Swanner and those kinds of organizations that are similar. It's a natural fit. To us. Right. It's a natural fit. And people are like, oh, of course those two would be together. But I think it's important because it's not always easy, right? Because we think, wow, well, sure. people are going to support mountain trails and they maybe aren't going to support the Summit Land Conservancy. Right. But I always feel like if you support one, you ought to support the other because open space is better with trails and trails is better with open space. Right. They go together. And yeah. Swanner, you know, they, again, you know, they have a preserve. They're protecting open space. But they're protecting and restoring 
that preserve that they have mm -hmm. and that becomes a toehold for all kinds of other species that go into Round Valley and go to the McPoland Farm and go to Quarry Mountain which are the properties that we protect so it's just better to work Across together and I think that so and, and those are the ones again that are a little trickier because they're you know your mission is similar mm -hmm. and so you think well, you may draw the same donors right and mm -hmm. are we gonna poach them are they gonna stop giving so much to us and you know you have to let that go and let the donor decide I like that and provide a good a good you know experience and, and a and good quality impact for that donor well, I like that perspective, and I think it's partly why, for me, I've been here for five years now, um, why I do think there is a really good spirit among nonprofit leaders, and I think it's because of the attitude that you have, and many others have, yeah. that they want to collaborate. They're letting go of that sense of, what if I lose a donor? And, and they let that go so that we can do more together, and, and it's no doubt about it. It's so much more fun to work together yeah. and see each other as an advocate to, to each other. So, well, well sure, Fox. Live yeah. PC, give PC is such a case in point. There you and, go, right. You know, because you you're online and it's like click to buy, right? Because once right. you're in there, it's like, oh, I want to donate there. Click, how much? Oh, click. And the first year that that was out, my husband afterwards is like, how much did we donate? <laughs> it does. It's so easy to donate. <laughs> it's I know. so easy to donate. And I didn't really know, but I would see, oh, you know, oh, I, I want to support that. And then I'd see, you know, Scott Loomis donated some at Land Conservancy. I'm like, wait, did I donate to afford the housing people yet? Oh my god, okay. so, you know, it's so, true. That's a great point. It makes it very easy to donate. It does. It's a make brilliant it, idea. But it's such a great collective, right? Because as you say, there are all these great organizations in town, and every one of them makes this community great. Well and, said. Agreed. Yeah. You. You. You know, who would you not have? Nobody. So it's it's important. Well, excellent. Cheryl Fox, ED of the Summit Land Conservancy. What's the website again so people can find out more information about your organization? Go ahead and give that. WeSaveLand.org. Love it. WeSaveLand.org. Cheryl, it's been great. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you coming. Thank you.